Files. It's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And a welcome, one and all, to episode 284 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the California State Route episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that there's a short state highway in Plumas County, California. It happens to be a spur route off from State Route 470 in Chilcoot, connecting to Frenchman Lake. That short state highway is California State Route. 284. And with that wonderful little bit of geographical knowledge about California, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from said sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And did you say that was in Plymouth, California, or by Plymouth, California? Plumas County, California. Oh, Plumas County, California. Yeah, I'm trying to look up here on the old phone exactly where that's located. But it's taking too long. See, I thought you said Plymouth, and Plymouth is where I be getting married next year. Oh. Well, let's see. It says that Plumas County uh, is in the Sierra Nevada of California. Okay, so yeah, close to County seat is Quincy. Nevada. Yeah, the only incorporated city is Portoia, and it is. It is actually right on the border of Nevada. Sexy. Have you yes. ever spent any time in Reno? No, only Vegas. Are you too good for Reno? Nope, just never had the opportunity. Lou for for the for biggest Reno? little city in the world. That's right, and it's funny. I uh, there there was a TV show on some time ago, a musical TV show that lasted. I, I don't even think it was for an entire season. It was called Viva Laughlin. I think it was produced by Hugh Jackman. And I never heard of Laughlin. Have you? And apparently that's another city kind of like Reno. So we, we have all these mini Vegases. We have Reno. We have Laughlin, apparently. I, I, is Atlantic City still a thing? No. Well, I mean, strictly speaking, yes. Atlantic City is an area where you can go and gamble. But in terms of it being like the Mecca that it once was, I do not believe so. No. Have you ever spent time in Atlantic City? Maybe drove through it once. I'm not, and I'm not 100% on that. Hmm. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm just not helping you today. It's fine. I'll edit it so it sounds like you are. <laughs> Yay, fake news. <laughs> Throw in a few fart noises and it'll, it'll come out great. Well, okay, so we got a lot to get to and we have been held up by various scheduling things and trips and whatever else out there in the world. So, Sean, when you want to just jump into it, I know that both of us have some things that we want to talk about. This is, this is not official news. This is just some stuff that came up that we just felt couldn't wait. Um, and I think I may have broken Tim's mind when I let him know about some shit that went down with Terry Gilliam and the Don Quixote film. Do you want to share your heartbreak with us, Tim? Yeah, um... I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have to. 
With oh, no, I, I do. I do, because this has been a long-running discussion or a subject. Discuss, discussion subject. Discussed. This, there we go. This has been a long-running discussed subject here on the SLS cast. I'm sure. just trying to find, out of the two here, which article is the newer... Okay, I'm going to go with the uh, SlashFilm.com article. Terry Gilliam flies too close to the sun, loses rights to the man who killed Don Quixote, written by Hoi Bui. Hoi Tran Bui. Uh, apologize, Hoi, or how, how Hoi... I, you know, it, I, there's usually like a go-to part of the name, like, but this one, there are no go-to parts. Anyway, Slash Film Contributor, and it says this. The man who killed Don Quixote's curse has struck again. After Terry Gilliam had seemingly won a decades-long battle against God in the universe with the film's triumphant screening at Cannes last month, the embattled director has been dealt yet another blow. Despite a Paris court ruling in his favor prior to the Cannes screening, Gilliam has now lost the man who killed Don Quixote to his former producer, Paul Bronco. After decades of behind-the-scenes strife and arduous legal battles, Gilliam had finally crossed the finish line. The man who killed Don Quixote was in the can and had screened to film festival audiences. Gilliam's passion project, which had first began its notoriously troubled journey to the big screen in 1990, simply awaited a distributor. But of course, that was not the end of this movie's infinite supply of troubles. IndieWire.com reports that the Paris Court of Appeal has reversed the initial ruling that granted Gilliam the rights to The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. The appeals court judge ruled in favor of the film's former producer, Paul Bronco, who sued Gilliam over rights to the project and attempted to block the film's premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. Gilliam managed to win the court battle at the Paris District Court and screened the film at Cannes, but now the Paris Court of Appeal has added another twist onto the protracted 18-month legal battle between Gilliam and Bronco. The appeals court judge ruled that the contract drawn up between Gilliam and Bronco in 2016 granted the Portuguese producer rights to the man who killed Don Quixote remains intact. The filmmaker has also been ordered to pay Bronco's Alfama Films, $11,600 in fees. Bronco told Screen Daily that, quote, film was made illegally, end quote, and that he would be seeking damages from all the parties who had produced the film without the consent of Alfama Films. He continued, quote, the ruling means that the rights to the film belong to Alfama. Any exploitation of the film up until now has been completely illegal and without the authorization of Alfama. We will be seeking damages with interest from all the people involved in this illegal production and, above all, all those who were complicit in its illegal exploitation. We're holding everyone responsible, end quote. This guy kind of sounds like a cunt. By, quote, everyone, end quote, Bronco means that he will not only seek damages against Gilliam, but also, quote, the film's producers, Kinology, all the others who supported the film, including those who distributed the film in France and the Cannes Film Festival, everyone, end quote. That's a lot of people to target over the rights to a film that Bronco has been involved with for two years, but Bronco seems determined that the man who killed Don Quixote would not see the light of day. On Gilliam's part, the director asserts that Bronco did not fulfill his part of the contract when he didn't deliver the promised funding 
for the production, leading Gilliam to seek out another producer. Uh, the article does go on for a minuscule more. Again, that was SlashFilm.com. Terry Gilliam flies too close to the sun, loses rights to the man who killed Don Quixote. Man, this sucks. I totally get it. I mean, this is the guy. This is the producer that was supposed to give him money to finance the film. Yet, he didn't follow through with the financing of the film. Now he's all butthurt because Gilliam ended up getting the financing for the film and actually made the movie. So really what it does come down to, Bronco didn't really lose anything. That's what it sounds like, at least. Bronco didn't lose anything. Yes, he's like the 21st century equivalent to H.H. Holmes, minus the serial killer part. Minus the death house yeah. in the World's Fair. Exactly. It, it literally seems like the guy completely reneged on the contract. But it looks like he has somehow successfully argued that despite his his reneging on the contract, there was no clause that said, hey, if I don't come up with the money, that means I forfeit the rights. Apparently, that's not in there, at least at this point. I, I'm sure we'll find out ultimately. There's just no way Gilliam's going to let this go. But as of now, it doesn't look like there's ever going to be any way we're going to see it. Because this guy is like going to sue everybody into oblivion. And then, of course, what makes it even worse is that now he's got... He, if, he, if he wins all this stuff, he's going to get any purported money. And not only did he not do anything, he literally held it up for two years. So, right. what a dick. Um just in, in short, at least from what from what I can gather here, what a dick. And what's even more dickish is that the movie didn't even garner that many great reviews. Based off of the Cannes screening, which reviews can change after, you know, the Cannes screening and whatnot. And the movie very well could change, but, I mean, I doubt it. I mean, it's less than 60% favorable. So it's not like it's particularly an outstanding movie. But it's very reminiscent of what Gilliam did with Brazil when the studio was trying to censor Brazil and create a love conquers all happy ending at the end of Brazil, except the more depressing, sad ending of Brazil. You know, so what he did is that he just went ahead and, and showed a lot of people, a lot of critics and a lot of college students who would get the ending to drum up some support behind him. I could see him doing something kind of like that, or even just somehow secretly releasing the movie online for people just to watch for free, because by this time, he's not going to be losing any money, since he's already going to have to owe a shit ton to this Bronco dude. Yeah, I mean, and ultimately, I guess it's just going to have to go to the Paris court, but I mean, it's not like there's... Um, what, what, what was the movie? Lockdown, right? That we went and saw that got sued in Paris... Luc Besson got sued for, the, you know, uh, the... the uh, oh, the, oh, the sci-fi movie. one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Escape from New York, right? Right. So so we'll see how it all turns out. I mean, I, I suppose not all hope is lost, but at the same time, it, it's just not looking good. And like I... When, when I tagged Tim online uh, with it on Twitter, it's, it's a good thing I wasn't holding my breath. <laughs> dot, 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 dot. So yeah, so that's so yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. We we would love to hear from you guys on it. So definitely, if you have any thoughts about this saga, 
So send us an email, the show at SLScast.com, or hit us up on Twitter at the SLScast. And that goes for you too, Terry Gilliam. That's right. Please reach out. Please, yes. We would love to hear your side. I think you definitely have one, at least one, if not two, ardent supporters over here. So, uh, yeah, so I I, uh, was looking around yesterday at the old Reddit pages, and I come across this thing. I, I... as a member of MoviePass, I'm also subscribed to the MoviePass Club uh, subreddit on Reddit. And I mean, not that there's anything special. It's just like any other, vir- you know, virtually any other subreddit on Reddit. You just go and subscribe to it. And someone who works, uh, a, a basically a throwaway account was created by someone who was able to prove to the, uh, to, to the moderators of the subreddit that this person worked for AMC and basically broke the leaked the Stubbs A list uh, information to Reddit yesterday. It is now an article on Slash Film. AMC was not pleased that this was leaked, but basically AMC has now entered the foray. They have officially thrown the gauntlet at MoviePass, and this is their deal. So I am pulling this from because the um, the user from Reddit and the post itself has been deleted, but uh, you can still at least go and view the comments on Reddit if you want to. Uh, it's called um, it's from the MoviePass Club subreddit, and it's called AMC's version of MP is called AMC A List. So you can Google that. But here I also have a slash film article, so slashfilm.com by way of Jacob Hall. And uh, it, I'm just pulling up right here. It says that it costs uh, $19.99 a month. That's right. $19.99 a month can be used at uh, all AMC, AMC Dine-In, and AMC Classic Theaters in the United States. It includes all of AMC's premium offerings, including IMAX, Dolby Cinema, Real D, 3D, Prime, and Big D. Uh, if you are already an AMC Stubbs uh, member, you you actually will roll into uh, your A-list membership so that they'll become one thing. And those members can book tickets online in advance and at AMC theaters with reserved seating and specific seats can be booked as well. It uh, You also get the benefits of Stubbs Premiere, which means you get VIP service levels at AMC 39 theaters. There's no online ticketing fees and significant food and beverage savings. Um, with the normal $15 Premiere annual fee being waived. And then there's no waiting after enrollment and no special credit card to be carried. Uh, AMC Subs A-List is web and smartphone based. But what does that mean? It means that you can watch three movies a week, uh, up to three movies per week, and it's $20 a month. But you can see all three movies on the same day if you wanted to. You can also watch the same movie multiple times. And... So basically, this is a huge, huge shot at MP at MoviePass. Uh, as we've talked about before, Cinemark's stuff is uh, theirs is nine dollars a month, and you get one two D two D movie a month uh, for free. You also get twenty percent off concessions. You also get the no online fees and all that kind of stuff. But you can buy additional movie tickets online and basically stack them. And so you can buy them at nine bucks a pop. And then 
they don't ever expire as long as you keep your account active. So you can stack those movie tickets and then dole them out at your leisure. So that's the Cinemark version. AMC has definitely, you know, shots fired over here. Um, MoviePass, uh, they fired back on Twitter and they said that uh, heard AMC, this is from the MoviePass, uh, the verified MoviePass account on Twitter, at MoviePass. Heard AMC theaters jumped on board the movie subscription train, twice the price for one-fourth the theater network and 60% fewer movies. Thanks for making us look good, AMC. A follow-up tweet was, um, AMC has repeatedly disparaged our business, our model as a way to discourage our growth because all along they wanted to launch their own more expensive plan. We want to make movies more accessible. They want more profit. Now, I will say this. If premium seating is a deal breaker for you, then the AMC plan is gonna is definitely going to kick MoviePass's ass. If, like me, it's not a deal breaker, then I'm sorry. I mean, a movie a day is clearly the way to go. That being said, I am also plagued by the worst fucking AMCs on the planet being here in Houston, or at least North Houston area, because they fucking suck. Like, they literally smell. Like, there's an odor when you go into the ones that are around me. And I don't live in a bad area, you know. I I feel like I live in a very nice part of town. Not like upscale nice part of town, but decent, low-crime part of town. And these fucking AMCs just cannot get it the fuck right. So they could probably offer me free movies, unlimited free movies, and I don't think I would go. Um, it, the AMCs in my area are just that bad. So your mileage may vary on that. I don't know. Tim, where where are you at on this? Or, you know, I mean, because obviously this was kind of thrown at you, and I know you only just found out about it today yourself. So, Well, I, they're like you. There's not really many AMCs I care to go to over here. They, we have something called an AMC Marketplace here that is like a smaller AMC theater, I guess. It's like in a little shopping center that usually uh, shows more of the indie movies that I go to. Okay. Right across the street from that is, is an AMC dine-in, but MoviePass won't allow you to use the AMC dine-in. So I'm wondering, will this AMC subscription allow you to use it at an AMC dine-in? It does. If so, that could be kind of interesting. I would not purchase the food there, but I'd just go <laughs> see a movie there. Sure. No, again, it can be used at all AMC, AMC dine-in, and AMC Classic Theaters in the United States. But then the closest, like, larger AMC theater is AMC Century City, and you have to pay an arm and a leg to park there. At least with MoviePass, by me, we have more of an art house theater called The Landmark, which mm -hmm. I'm able to see a, a lot of movies, and also do e-ticketing, which is super nice. I can get on the train and go to a little chain of art house theaters. They're called the Limley Theaters. I can see them there. Which, are, which is very nice, and they play a lot of the indie flicks. Just my deal with the new AMC subscription is the quality of films that I can see at a given theater. And not just that, but also the quality of the experience of seeing a movie at a given theater. Because, as with you, I've had some shitty experiences at AMCs. I've also had great experiences at AMCs. 
but I like the variety of still being able to see non-super popular movies really close by. Sure. Now, I think one thing that AMC could have a hand over MoviePass that could mean a lot to some people, and that is customer service. If AMC is quick to respond to any issues, and they are legitimately there for the customer, then that could be a game changer, you know? And maybe they could work to become a better theater chain. If that's if that's true, I'd make it a point, uh, you know, I'd, I guess I'd consider moving to AMC. I mean, who knows? Maybe because of this, and they might hear people like you saying, you know, I, I currently use MoviePass, but I would switch to AMC if you do e-ticketing for all your theaters, and right. you actually clean up your theaters and make it more of an enjoyable experience, I would definitely consider switching over. I don't know. It's good to stir the pot. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that AMC is actually hopping on the bandwagon. Right on, man. Okay. Well, cool. Well, then, you know, again, let us know what you think. Send an email to the show at slscast.com and or hit us up on Twitter at the SLScast. So, yeah. That, and, and I'm glad we got to talk about that. I, again, those were just things that uh, popped up, cropped up on us and... Clearly, we're not going to work with our copycat throwdown that we need to get to, and I suppose we can do that now, can't we? Yes, we can. Well, then, let's do it. It's... It's... The... The... Copy... Copy... Cat... Cat... Throwdown! Throwdown! That's right, it's the copycat throwdown! Well, that's right, it's the copycat throwdown! Stop it! Stop it. No, no, seriously, stop it. Oh, right. Like, stop repeating? Stop repeating. Right. Oh, uh, okay. I'm going to kick gonna your ass. ass. Throwdown time. So this time on uh, Copycat Throwdown, we are actually comparing 1972's Superfly uh, versus 2018's Superfly remake. And, uh, well, I guess uh, we should probably talk about them so so let's let's just do them in chronological order 1972's superfly this dude is bad and he ain't just fly he's super fly yeah super fly when it comes to women they come to him but it's still not enough he wants a big score a million in cash yeah the big one. This is a chance, and I want to take it now. Before I have to kill somebody. Before somebody ices me. What kind of money are we talking about? Not much. I want his ass out working. With now that I took all this chance for nothing, and I go back to being nothing. Work at some jive job for chump change day after day. Look, if that's all I'm supposed to do, then they're going to have to kill me because that ain't enough. Ain't I clean? Bad machine. Super cool. Super mean. Feeling good for the man. Super fly. Here I stand. Secret stash. Every bread. Baddest bitches in the bed. I'm your pusher man. Break! Can a super fly Harlem dude leave the system? He's got a plan to stick it to the man. He's super hood, super high, super dude, super fly. 
All right. And, um, you know, just so that we can get this all out of the way up front, let's, let's see how that stacks against 2018's Superfly. You literally could have taken any kid off the corner, but you chose me. Why? These fools in the streets acting like they got something to prove. They only want to hustle for the money and the flash, but not you. You're special. Welcome to Atlanta. You've got everything you could ever want. Culture, style, and of course, music. But if you look deeper, there's a whole other side you've never seen before. Welcome to my world. I've been working these streets since I was 11. Gave people jobs when there were no jobs. I swapped cash for crypto and redefined the hustle. I choose my crew wisely. Scatter, that's my mentor. I know that you miss your favorite student. I miss kicking your ass. Georgia, she's my inspiration. You can be whatever you want to be. And Eddie, that's my soul. Everything is moving smooth like butter. Appreciate you, little genius. You've been operating under the radar. All of that's about to change. You know there's a difference between getting out and being pushed out. This new crew, they have cartel connections. And they're coming after everything we have and everyone we love. What's the play here? One last score is so big that we will never have to look over our shoulder again. But we have to go to the source. If we do this, there's no going back. Never was. I know who you are, priest. Abandon our business? That's unacceptable. I promise I'm gonna take care of you. We stick to the plan. What plan? We black men ain't nowhere safe. All right. So there you go. You've now heard, uh, you, you've heard both trailers and uh, can pretty much be able to piece together that this, that 2018 is a flat remake of 1972. Quickly though, have yeah. you noticed that 1972 Superfly is spelt differently than the it current is, it's version? two words. Is there any significance behind this? Does one mean something different than the other? I, I think that it's the colloquialism. I think it's literally just been so ingrained into us that Superfly is one word that it it didn't click to or it had it no longer clicks with anyone that it was the name of the product. Superfly was the really good cocaine that they're using in 1972 and that was the physical name of it now it's just kind of like this whole idea that it's just one homogenized word that doesn't even necessarily mean drugs or anything like that but to you're not just fly you're super fly and it's kind of fallen into that parlance and i think that's why i think it just would have been confusing uh for people to sit there and try and think that it was two words interesting okay yeah and this is pure speculation on my part basically both films are about the same thing, though 1972 takes place in New York and 2018 takes place in Atlanta. We just have young blood priest, African-American drug dealer who is tired of the life and wants to get out. One big score, one more big score, and then get the fuck out and shit goes sideways on him. That's that's the heart and soul of this movie, of both movies. Now, in point of fact... 1972 Superfly hasn't really aged very well and on the whole isn't a particularly strong movie in terms of the acting and the production. But 
despite those failings, 1972's Superfly still has some really interesting concepts going for it. I really noticed the idea that there's lots of like gonzo filmmaking happening there. There's also the idea of letting things play out. Remember I talked about back in episode 270 when we were covering the Death Wish movies, how you see 1970s sensibilities in place. And the thing about uh, Death Wish, the original one, is 1974. So you can see what it looks like on a really slick level. And you're kind of seeing the beginnings of that at a lower budget level in 1972 with Superfly. So you get to see how things play out. And in doing so, it just kind of carries on too long. And quite a few of the scenes are very, very slow. Subsequently, they're very slow. Yet there's still a lot of really interesting ideas at play here uh the way drug dealers would work with uh will work with the people how they how chase scenes work how the idea of interrogations with cops and stuff like that but at the same and and even to mainstream sex in a, an adult film not pornographic adult but just in an adult themed film all these things are played out in the original Superfly, and they're really, really interesting. The concepts definitely are there. And also, looking at the way that the movie plays its archetypes, not stereotypes, which was a big concern with the uh, NAACP, which, thank God I said that right this time. Last time we had a discussion like this, I said the fucking NCAA, so sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, so we got the N NAACP who were worried about stereotypes. And this, of course, was one of the films that led the way for the black exploitation cinema of the 70s. And yet, you can see how and why these archetypes were created in the dynamics that they were. This is what they had. I mean, one of the funniest lines of the movie for me is when um, Eddie... Is, to, is is questioning Priest. Young Blood Priest is his full name, but everybody just calls him Priest. He's questioning, Eddie is questioning Priest. Eddie is his partner. He's like, man, you got your own place. You got a color TV in every room. And you're able to smoke, you know, you're able to do any kind of drugs you want, smoke any kind of weeds you want. And he's like, you know, Basically, you're living the the American the fucking American dream, and I'm like, wow. And yet, from that context, it was so. There's there's just a lot of really interesting ideas going on here, and it's those things that made this movie so popular and so powerful. This this movie had a budget of less than five hundred thousand dollars of the of the day, and you got to think the five hundred thousand dollars back then was about just a little under three million, so like two point six, two point seven million dollars. And it brought in, uh, it brought in like twenty-four million dollars. I mean, and this is back when your dollar could go a lot further. So, ton of money that this film made. So, despite its failings, I gotta say I at least liked the movie. It's slow. It hasn't aged well. A lot of the acting is pretty, not necessarily terrible but just not professional 
and you can tell that there are lots of amateurs or actors and actresses with little to no experience. And yet, lots of great ideas going on, especially in the production and in the archetypes behind the story. Jumping to 2018, I was not expecting a whole lot. Uh, th this one was directed by Director X. Uh, he has actually done... Mo uh, let's see here. So he did uh, Rhythm City, Volume 1, Across the Line, Center Stage... Uh, and then Superfly. So he's primarily known for like um, music videos and stuff like that. I was absolutely blown away by how good this movie was. Superfly 2018 really does a great job of taking all those really good ideas and really nice archetypes from the original Superfly and putting them into a 2018 context, but with a, with, with a wonderful degree of just slickness. I mean, it's slick to look at. The veneer is awesome. That's not to say that this is a flawless film by any stretch of imagination, because it is filled with so many gangster tropes. I, it's like I, you know, when, when, Tim and I were, were texting a little bit about the stuff yesterday, and I said it, it was literally like we were, you know, living in a gangsta plot device, okay? Not gangster's paradise, but gangsta plot device. Because um, one of the, oh, I can't think of his name, who, who, the guy, basically there's this one guy, he works for Snow Patrol, which is like this competing drug cartel in Atlanta, that is, they have a mutual respect with Priest and his outfit, so they don't, so there's no beef. But this guy is just basically jealous of Priest and wants to take him on. And he is literally just the driving force for anything shitty that needs to happen. And it's, it's very tired and played out, and it's, and it happens pretty early in the movie, and it just continues to happen. So, I mean, there's, there's aspects of 2018 Superfly that aren't as good, uh, or that still aren't super great today. But the soundtrack was, was just on lock. The, the aspects of the acting were legit. I loved the updates to everything that they had that made, the original stand out literally like there's judo in the first movie they have a, this thing that makes the, to show how priest is uh forward thinking he knows how to take care of himself so one of the things that he does is he practices judo now they're doing jujitsu i think in the 2018 version you know mma but again they leave the martial arts aspect in and it's and it and they make it pretty slick again in in how it's executed so it's stuff like that. Even the way that the awkward sex scene from 1972 was carried over into 2018. Not quite as awkward, but still done to the point where you can see how and why Director X chose to make the film the way that he did and how he pays homage to the original but still makes it completely up to date. It's truly a it's truly a very very good remake. 
Um, so consequently, despite the history behind Superfly, despite the fact that there, I would encourage you to see it, if nothing else, then for a study on black exploitation cinema. Um, but it does have some interesting things going on in its own right. 2018's remake uh, is just, it is well done, it is well executed, it's got plot device problems and some character problems, but it is still the superior film. So I choose 2018 Superfly as the winner of the copycat throwdown, at least from my end. We'll, we'll see if Tim's going to refute that. Everybody who's been at the top of the game being down, right? They end up dead or in jail almost always because of their ego, wanting more than they should want. Everybody wants to be great. Everybody wants to be super fly. They want to be us. You dance with the devil long enough, he's bound to step on your feet. All our years, we never had to body anyone. Eddie, why is that? Because when they think he's going to do it, you don't have to. It's leverage. No, it's because bodies leave a stink on you. I'm not talking about a stink that bring no police. I'm talking about a stink that you can never shake. A stink that will bring you down. I get it, Priest. You don't have to preach to me, okay? It's not Sunday. If you get it, then you hear what I'm saying. I want out the cocaine business. I, too, agree that Superfly 2018 was the better Superfly. It is indeed more fly than Super Space Fly. And did I think it deserved a remake? Absolutely. And this is why. 1972 Superfly was director Gordon Parks' follow-up to the very successful film Shaft, which came out in 1971. Shaft was indeed the third exploitation film ever made. Shaft was the first major film to feature an African-American actor in a leading role. That's like a first major studio film to feature an African-American in a leading role. The film broke the in-movie stereotypes of African-American men by placing them in a position of power. And due to its popularity, the film went on to spawn a whole other slew of stereotypes, which is pretty interesting. I mean, that's kind of the catch-22 with some of the, these exploitation flicks, is that they broke stereotypes and also created some. After Superfly came out, just a year after Shaft, many of the African Americans, particularly the Hollywood chapter of the NAACP, began voicing their opinions on what has become a trend in these exploitation flicks that glorify black men as drug pushers and takers, pimps, womanizers, and gangsters. Okay, what's happening? Unlike the production of Shaft, in which white men predominantly controlled the production, Superfly actually had the largest non-white crew at that time. And the reason why I did that whole spiel right there was to kind of go into more detail of the setting, you know, the time period. Because whenever you watch Superfly, a lot of people now, even myself, are pretty taken back by it. I mean, yes, the 2018 version is sleeker, it's, it's a bit flashier, it's a little bit more in your face, but hardly a minute goes by when somebody is not snorting cocaine in the uh, 1972 Superfly movie. Mm. I mean, that, that was the issue. That's what a lot of the people in the NAACP, they were upset about. These men, yes, they're in positions of power, and that's great, 
but they're necessarily not in the positions that people should respect. So you had these young boys, I guess mainly, uh, or even young girls who watch this and think, to be successful, I have to get into drugs. To be successful, I have to get into prostitution. To find a guy who is successful, I have to be his woman. You know, I have to go work for him type of deal. And so that is, again, is what I mean of creating more stereotypes because that definitely becomes a common aspect of many of these black exploitation films. He's been all stretched out, like he's coming some money or something. That's his ass. He's good for it. It's that bitch of his, you know, that's the problem. I got 50 men out on the street now. If they all get bitch troubles, I starve. Is that it? Is that what you're trying to tell me, dude? Freeze. Do what you want to do. I want his ass out working. Priest, you know me, man. You'll get your money. Yeah, when? This ain't the first time for you, Trick. I've had to wait for as long as a month on you for my money. Now, you trying to take advantage of me, Freddy. This time, your black ass is going to work. Priest, all I do is sell coke, man. I don't do no violence. I don't mess with no fire. No guns, no guns. Don't, don't argue violence, with me, man. man. I'm trying to give you a chance. Now, you don't get me my money tonight. I'm going to put that young girl of yours out on Horace Road. Listen, Priest, that's my wife you're talking so about, man. what? Now, somebody's going to work tonight, Freddy. You really shouldn't have fucked with my money, Freddy. Get your money, man. And I'm not necessarily talking about, like, Foxy Brown or even Coffee, the Pam Greer type of movies, because those movies were made to show not only just a powerful woman, but a very powerful, beautiful African-American woman. Yet, she could still kick ass, she could still take no names, but she was just a badass. Every time we think about Shaft, we think of him as a badass. And just unfortunately, movies like Superfly, though very popular and groundbreaking for various reasons, ended up creating a negative outlook on the culture at that time. One thing I want to point out about both of these movies, one aspect that the 2018 film captured wonderfully... <laughs> was the haircut. Oh my God, yes. Both yes. Youngblood priests have equally bad haircuts. I mean, the Youngblood priest in the 72 version, man, he had he had long, soft, beautiful long hair, and he had those wicked-looking sideburns that came down to a point, and they <laughs> almost like connect <laughs> on his chin. Yeah, like the mutton chops, except uh, more stylized and pointed. It's almost like... He could peel back one of those sideburns and do cocaine off it. <laughs> and then, of course, in the 2018 version, Priest has his hair that's up. He looks very much like a hipster that you would see often around some of these L.A. music festivals and whatnot. Uh, he wears like tur a turtleneck, very interesting clothing as well. 1972 version is definitely grittier. 2018 version is sleeker. As I said, the 1972 version featured a lot of drug use. The 2018 film, you don't see much drug use. Even like the violence. People who are directly affected by either the drug use or the fighting between the rival gangs, most of that fallout takes place only within their groups. Nobody else is really affected. And I kind of like that about the remake. If you're a bad fucking guy in this film, it's obvious you're a bad guy. Ron O'Neill's priest was very one-dimensional 
at least with Trevor Jackson's breeze, you get the idea that he really wants to actually change jobs for the better good. Ron O'Neill is very, he's more of a hardened priest who really but doesn't... there's a reason for that, though. And the reason is, is that he's done time. In 1972, Ron Priest's young blood priest is, uh, I'm sorry, Ron O'Neill's young blood priest can't do anything else, which is why he's got to have a score big enough to retire on, because with his record, he can't do anything. But Trevor Jackson's young blood had, you know, some minor problem as a juvie, which has been sealed. So he has the ability to move forward. Also, he knows how to schmooze. I think they're both... The the idea behind behind Priest for both movies, but I think something that was really groundbreaking in 1972, for at least the cinema, cinema world, was to show a black man who dared, who had the unmitigated temerity to look like a white man. And again, the long, straight, permed out hair that, you know, has been completely straightened and had the ability to run with forethought to plan, to actually be smarter than the cops, you know, who who represent the man. And again, going back to display of power, display of having the hero, albeit an anti-hero, really and truly, be a black man in a black world in 1972, something that hadn't been done before, which you rightly pointed out. So I think that's why he seems it's... it. I totally get where you're coming from in terms of it being one-dimensional, but I think it's meant as he's he's driven. It's because he's so single-minded at trying to get through, trying to get this plan to work. Whereas it's it's a little bit more nuanced in 2018. And Priest you know, doesn't have the record. He hides under the radar. He schmoozes with the right people. He's got the art house front, um, you know, and stuff like that. So I'm not, I, I definitely don't disagree that he's one dimensional, but I don't think, I don't hold it against the film in that regard either. Between the two of them, did you feel more compelled to support one over the other or one more over I the did. other? I did. And again, it would be Trevor Jackson's Youngblood from 2018. Because right. on the whole, despite like I, again, I get why it was done the way it was done in 1972, but that doesn't mean it was the best way to have it be done. And I think that they pulled it off a lot better in 2018. Was that the right answer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I agree as well, obviously. How much stuff we got left now? About a half a key out in the street. Let's take what we have now and split. Are you crazy? You know damn well who kills Scatter. And if we fuck up, he'll kill us too. Besides, got it beat. We'll make a fortune. Just don't rock the boat, man. It's worse now than it was before. But that man owns us. You understand that, Eddie? To him, we're not real. He'll just use us and then kill us. Man, people have been using me all my life. Yeah. That, that hunky's using me, so what? You know, I'm glad he's using me. 
Because I'm going to make a piss pot full of money. And I'm going to live like a prince, a fucking black prince. Yeah, this is the life. I could be nothing nowhere else. And about his killing me, shit, I don't care. As long as he lets me live to be an old motherfucker. And I ain't going to do nothing to make him kill me now. Suppose I could figure a way out of this shit. The 72 version is a novelty of a film. It was a breakout film that was super popular at the time that just, when it comes down to it, does not age well. It's it's stuck in a time capsule of ridiculousness and, and what's the word I'm trying to think of? Not over-the-topness. Grandiosity? It's very, it's, yeah, it's very grandiose. It's very yeah. grand, grandiose. I mean, Jesus, that car, right? I mean, come on. Well, right, yeah. But like the, <laughs> the 72 version, it's very grandiose in the characters and, and even the dialogue and the interactions and how the story is carried out. But then the 2018 version is unnecessarily grandiose and over-the-top as well. I think it's over-directed. I couldn't care less about anybody in that movie. To me, there was no real humanity at all. Do I give a fucking shit about these fuckers at these parties in slow motion throwing money at chicks? $100 bills at chicks? Right. I couldn't Which care. Leads... The... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, 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 yeah, you can't. You couldn't care less. And, and here's my thing. Look, I, I, I admit it. As much as I joke around, I'm not as hip and as cool as I would like to be. But... My question is, and this again goes back to the plot device, because it's done over and over and over and over again. It's like every time there's a party, every time there's some form or fashion of get-together, the it's, it's look at my, you know, gargantuan display of wealth. I have so much money, I can just, you know, make it rain. That's all well and good. But I am legitimately wondering what the protocol is. Who, who picks that money up? Yeah. <laughs> Who is supposed to pick up? Are you supposed to like run around and be like, shit, man, I better pick that shit up. I don't want to, you know, uh, or are, are the women you're making it rain on, are they supposed to pick it back up and then give it back to you? Or do you just throw $20,000 away? Whatever happened to putting the money like in the underpants, right? <laughs> like that's, that's why strippers but, would wear G strings. So, yeah, you know, they you, can easily put the money in the. But, I mean, because of, of the excessiveness, that's the word I was trying to think of, excessiveness. Because of the excessiveness in the remake, I just couldn't get behind it. But I could definitely get behind it more than the 1972 version, because at least the excessiveness in the 2018 version doesn't temper the story much. And it's an interesting story. I think the direction they took the film and they took the characters was very interesting, but it would have been nice to have seen something a little bit more grounded and not an MTV music video. I would have liked to have cared. Even like the, the sex scene in the new movie wasn't even that great. It's a threesome in a shower. How it was shot, it looked like a softcore porn I could have watched on a Telenova episode. There was nothing sexy about it. Whereas the 70s version, they got that funky shit down. Maybe it was because of the time. I don't know. But there is something a lot more, you know, interesting than more bang for your buck. And yet it still doesn't work. The movie as a whole falls into better does not equal more. But the remake is just the better movie. Did the 70s movie deserve a remake? Absolutely. And was the remake better? Definitely. And really, it's just a couple things I just wanted to mention about the 2018 remake. 
Overall, what bothers me, I believe there were more consequences with the 70s film because it it had a grittier feeling to it. It could have been the excessive use of drugs that the characters partook in. But there was a lot of ridiculousness in the remake where a lot of stuff happened without real-world consequences. You have the, in the remake, you have those, the two dirty cops, who are the dirtiest cops in any movie featuring dirty cops. They don't even know who Young Blood Priest is. But Young Blood Priest is the flashiest-looking mother out there who has very pretty hair, who is very distinguishable from every other drug dealer on the streets. But, 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 as for the winner of the copycat throwdown all around is Superfly from 2018. I just wondering, Matt, when can we get our own permed funny haircuts? Would you want the Trevor Jackson permed haircut? Oh, absolutely. Are you, I, I have tried several times in my life to grow my hair out. And I, and I mean, and this isn't like I got frustrated after two months. I mean, like six, seven, eight months of not cutting my hair. And I've done that three, at least three times in my life. And it's never, it's just never turned out. So I would very much go with Trevor Jackson. Well, I'm pretty sure I already had Ryan O'Neill's hair at some point. <laughs> Minus the sideburns, but uh, I guess I can make that happen again. Maybe for my wedding, I could just show up with <laughs> Youngblood Priest hair from 1972. That'd be awesome. I would like that very much. <laughs> anyway, all right, so that concludes Copycat Throwdown, and next week's bonus segment is going to be a fun one for us. She made me watch it. That's right. Our SOs are going to provide a random movie from their catalog, and we've got to watch it no matter what. And then we will report back with review. And so without further ado, I guess it is time for the movies, is it not, sir? That it is. All right then, folks, it's the movie we And this week's movies are Incredibles 2. Tag 2018 film and Adrift 2018 film because there are other movies out there called Tag and Adrift, so you know that's why we did that. Um, so where do you want to start, sir? Do you want to get that? Uh, I know that you, despite your best efforts, had some issues with Adrift. So do you want to just have me not? I can knock that out for us uh, real fast if you like. Adrift away. I'm curious to hear about what I missed out on. <laughs> All right, folks. Adrift. We've been to so many places. What's it like selling out their own love? Miserable. You're either sunburnt, sleep deprived, or seasick. Mm. And after a few days, there's hallucinations. Why do you do it? It's a feeling. It's intense. It's just you and the infinite horizon. You must be a sailor too, I take it. I don't know that I would consider myself a sailor. Oh, come on. Not like you. <laughs> you are. Do you want to take her out? Right now? Anytime. You think you might want to go sailing with me? How would you like to sail with us out into California for us? 4,000 miles is insane. Come sail with me. Hurricane Raymond has been upgraded to a Category 5. Should we be worried? Maddie, Maddie! This is the sailing yacht has outed you! Copy! 
I love you. Get below! I'm not leaving you! Get below now! Oh, oh my god! god. Oh my god! Go! Die out here. All right, so Adrift, 2018 romantic drama film, American romantic drama film, produced and directed by uh, Baltasar Kormakur uh, and written by David Branson Smith, Aaron Kandel, and Jordan Kandel. This is actually based on a true story um, about Sam Claflin. Uh, um, I'm sorry. Tammy Oldham. There you go. It stars Shailene Woodley and Sam Claflin uh, as uh, a pair of star-crossed lovers who set a, who set out across the Pacific and end up in a random hurricane that destroys the boat and leaves them adrift. And how do they deal with it? And it, of course, also goes to how they met. Now, I am not a big uh, Shailene Woodley fan. I was not really all about the um, uh, Divergent films. We never watched them. I, I haven't, you know, so whatever. I see this movie. Also, I just kind of think, I, I see this movie and I'm like, at least it has the fact that it was based on a true story going for it because otherwise it just kind of looks like another The Fault in Our Stars or The Notebook or whatever the fuck. Uh, so, cool. Um, so I go and I see the movie and I sit down, and I start watching this movie, and I could not believe how good it was. What makes this movie so good, aside from wonderful, wonderful and earnest performances by both Shailene Woodley and Sam Claflin, is the fact that Balthazar Cormacour actually managed to pace it Perfectly. The editing is on point. Now, I, I I understand that, you know, the editor and the director are not the same thing. John Gilbert was the editor. But the editor can only do so much. I mean, you've still got to have well-acted scenes and you still have to have a well-choreographed story and storyline for that matter. And that is well done. You actually get to see how two people who both have their reasons for kind of being alone when they are in the, you know at, at the time that they are at in their lives who both are into sailing and come together and you know eventually fall in love and how that works in terms of the dynamic that happens when all hell breaks loose so it's it is this wonderful dynamic that you see between these an interplay between these two characters combined with a great back and forth of ostensibly flashbacks of how these two people got to where they were and then subsequently got to where they were in the you know in the middle of the ocean and the only and and yeah it's some of the tropes are a little overwrought and unnecessarily so, but it's supposed to be a moving romantic movie. And for that, 
it it still works to a certain degree. I think that despite the fact that a movie like this, you know, is just... I don't want to say it's necessarily a dime a dozen, but the true story aspect definitely helps kind of, you know, bring it to the fore a little bit better than the rest of the movies of this archetype that would be in the pile. So I do end up giving this movie a 4 out of 5. I actually really like the movie, but it's not necessarily a movie that desperately needed to happen. And it's not... And despite some storytelling mechanics that are meant to be overwrought, it's still very well directed, very well acted, and very, very well edited. And edited very, very well. So, four stars. Wow. Impressive. Believe me, I was impressed. I, you know... (laughs) So... So for whatever that's worth, what do you want to do? Incredibles 2 or Tags, sir? I'm hoping Incredibles 2 is your favorite between the final two. It is. Okay, yeah, let's do Tag then. All right, so as long as we're sticking with Based on a True Story, well, let's Based on a True Story, Tag. Susan, you take Jerry to be your husband. What's the difference between Episcopalian and Lutheran? Episcopalians don't eat fish. That's pescatarian, that's... Not a religion. They're all fanatics. I don't know. You you may kiss the bride. (laughs) I love you. Please tell me what's going on here. Our group of friends has been playing the same game of tag for 30 years. What? For the entire month of May, every year, we play tag. You got me. You never know when someone's going to pop up. Congratulations, buddy. You're it. Doing great, Anna. Our buddy Jerry is the best that ever played. And now he wants to retire. Never been tagged. Just saying. So who's it? Can't touch this. This is the year we get Jerry. Can't touch this. Synchronize your watches. I don't know how to do that. I don't wear a watch. Time is a construct. Some couples go on cruises. Some couples go camping. Some couples go to strip clubs and have a gangbang. And this is just what we love. This is our gangbang. Wow. Seems like... The game has really kept you guys connected. All right. So good to see you. Come on. It's been a while since we've done this. This game has given us a reason to be in each other's lives. I think your dad would have really wanted you to be. Yeah. <laughs> Eat, my Eat my dick. dick. Balls. But Ice cream. What? He knows I'm lactose intolerant. He's taunting me. All right, 2018 American comedy film uh, directed by Jeff Tomsick in his directorial debut. It's actually written by Rob McKittrick and Mark Stellan. Um, the film is based on a true story that was published in the Wall Street Journal uh, quite a long time ago. Well, I guess five, five or six years ago, really. And uh, it stars movie stars Ed Helms, Jake Johnson, Annabelle Wallace, Hannibal Burris, uh, Isla Fisher, Rashida Jones, Leslie Bibb, John Hamm, and Jeremy Renner. The movie's uh, about a group of guys, the, the Ed Helms, Jake Johnson, um, Hannibal Burris, John Hamm, and Jeremy Renner, who have been playing an ongoing game of tag for 30 years. They take the entire month of May, and it doesn't matter where they are in life, who's happening, what's going on. If you get tagged, you're it. And they have progressively added to the rules throughout the 30 years. They call them amendments. So things like no, no tag backs are in check. Um, and, you know, Ed Helms, uh, so, so basically Jeremy Renner's character is the only character in the entire group who has never, ever, ever been it. And he's, you know, like superhuman, right? I mean, so it's basically if Hawkeye was in real life, kind of. And, 
and so Ed Helms is has gotten the band together one more time because he's got he's got everybody convinced that Jeremy Renner is going to retire. He's getting married and he's going to retire and step out of the game. And of course, shenanigans ensue. Now, for as for as interesting of a premise as this movie is, I I mean. It's and and the fact that it's an R-rated comedy. This movie is ridiculously wholesome, and I mean that the, those words are incongruous, especially in terms of a in terms of an R-rated comedy. But the juxtaposition stands. the 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 irony stands. It is a ridiculous movie, and not always in a good way. Mainly in a not-quite-funny way, like desperately trying to be funny but not always pulling it off and usually just getting chuckle-worthy, and yet wholesome because the premise and the acting and the story is wholesome. And it's just weird that you're meshing this into an R-rated comedy. It's basically just so they can say fuck a lot. Um, There's not really any other reason for it. And... And that's really all I have to say about the movie. It's not a bad movie, guys. I I liked it enough to give it a three, but it's not spectacular, and it's definitely not something that you should waste your money on in the theater. Um, I I did not have a time before the show to research the original original story. I know enough about it that it was like a 23-year game of tag in real life, and there was like 15 guys instead of six or something. But I know that Tim probably did some more homework on that, and I'll let him share if he wants to. But for me, it's a three out of five. It's likable enough, but nothing special, and definitely not worthy of being R-rated. But it's a wholesome family comedy for not the family, unless the family is all adults. And take it away, Tim. There's not much I want to say about this movie other than it was a disappointment. It's unfunny. For an R-rated movie, it's very tame. I didn't care about this movie at all until maybe halfway through when it started getting a little bit interesting. It's a poor excuse for being an R-rated movie and trying at the same time to kind of tug at your heartstrings at the very end of the film, but still not take full opportunity of exploring that R rating. You have a lot of outlandish, over-the-top filmmaking styles a lot of slow motion a lot of over-the-top choreographed moments and shots and scenes that really is unneeded i mean really the only time that they that they needed to do some of the -the over-the-top slow motion is when you're going into the character's head like when jeremy renner's character one of the smarter things of the flick to get the idea that he's always five steps in front of everyone else as they're about to tag him or tackle him or do something to him, everything just slows down and it goes into Jeremy Renner narration. And then it might go into somebody else's narration. And at times it works, but most of the time it just does not. It becomes a gimmick. And then especially by the time the movie reveals its heart and why one certain character was adamant about succeeding and finally tagging Jeremy Renner, You're left thinking like, oh, it's very sweet, but it's also completely out of left field. I'm trying not to spoil what happens 
because you wonder, was it all really worth it? The movie makes it a point to explore how important friendship is. And that's great and everything. But then you have these outlandish characters. It, it makes the whole notion unbalanced. And in my opinion, doesn't really work a whole lot. But if you've seen the movie or if you're just even interested outside the actual New York Times article, there is a website called historyvershollywood.com. And you can actually look up Tag, and it goes into detail and answers a lot of questions that people had, like how did their game of Tag begin? How many real-life friends are involved in the ongoing game of Tag? How long does the game actually happen? Did they actually sign a Tag participation agreement? But one thing that really bugs me is that there is not really one character in the film that directly relates to one of the real people which is a little frustrating because of the source material that they had it could have been an incredibly intriguing movie about friendship and even about loss if they wanted to go down that road and what it means when you actually lose someone and what it means by being a friend and actually going to crazy lengths to do something like tag them you know there's just something fun about it because once you tag somebody, well, you tag them, they can't tag you back, you can hang out with them and bond. And this is what these guys did. They didn't just tag somebody and then run off, you know? And the only reason why I'm even mentioning anything remotely to character development and maybe finding a little bit more meaning behind the game of tag within the film called Tag is because of what the movie attempts to do at the end. It comes across as if the movie was trying to be something more than it obviously is not. So I'm just offering another avenue that the movie could have taken to where it would have been more effective and actually come across as legitimate. Two out of five. I think I might have laughed twice out of the whole movie, which really <laughs> bugs me because I'm an, I'm an Ed Helms fan. I'm a big John Hamm fan. The script really isn't that funny. So two out of five for me. Very good. All right, well, then that leaves us with Incredibles 2. Did you wash your hands? With soap? Did you dry them? What? Is this all vegetables? Who wanted all vegetables? I did. So, are we going to talk about it? Why? The elephant in the room. What elephant? Mom's new job. Time to make some wrong things right. Help me bring supers back into the sunlight. We need to change people's perceptions about superheroes. And Elastigirl is our best play. Better than me? <clears throat> Whoa! I like Mom's new job! Bye, sweetie. I'll watch the kids, no problem. supposed to do it dad they want us to do it this i don't way. know that way why would they change math uh, math is math okay, math dad. is math hello hey honey how are the kids everything's great is she having adolescence and jack jack he's in excellent health what the num num cooking okay oh, wow okay that is freaky 
You know it's crazy, right? To help my family, I gotta leave it. To fix the law, I gotta break it. You've got to, so our kids can have that choice. Combustion imminent? What does that mean? Ah! It means fire, Robert. The screen slater interrupts this program for an important announcement. Suit up. It might get weird. I'll be there ASAP. Where you going ASAP? You better be back ASAP. All right, 2018 American 3D computer animated superhero film, superhero film produced by Pixar Animation Studios and distributed by Walt Disney Pictures. Uh, this movie, of course, is written and directed by Brad Bird and is the sequel to 2004's The Incredibles. And uh, we are now following the continuing adventures. This uh, movie pretty much picks up um, literally w- within minutes of the end of the first film. And kind of shows how the how the 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 pars have to actually work together in the new environment of bringing supers back to the forefront. I have been waiting for this movie for fourteen years, just like everybody else. And I usually and I really say like six or seven years because I know how long it takes for Pixar to make a movie. But I was blown away by the first movie. I love the first movie. And naturally, of course, I own it. And please don't hate me and please don't stone me, but I was saddened as I left this movie theater uh, to, uh, when I when I left the movie theater from this film because this was not the movie I waited 14 years for. Um, what the movie does get right it gets very right it reintroduces the world that you left it feels like it is a true continuation of that world the look the feel the characters that you know and love are still there and yet at the same time the progressions that needed to be made in the characters especially given the gender role switch that was done between helen and bob should have been the focus of the film, much like it was in the first film, where you see Bob struggling to deal with not being a super anymore, and Helen struggles too, but she finds her joy in her life where she can. And there's the backdrop, there's doing this against the backdrop of Syndrome. And in this movie... Instead of having that role reversal, that gender role reversal, which would have, which would have been great to explore in this in this world, because as we know, the the movie takes place generally what it feels like in the '60s, the early '60s. So against that backdrop, you could see so much work being capable of being done there. And instead, it's just kind of like, oh, Dad can't take care of the baby. And, oh, mom's got to try and go get to work, but, oh, she still worries about her home. And they don't let that happen against the backdrop of our new bad guy, against our new supervillain. They make the movie about what the supervillain is and how the supervillain works. And then that is played against the backdrop of Helen and Bob having the role reversal. 
And I was really looking forward to seeing Helen come into her own and Bob really embrace that. And yet still, like by the end of the first movie, come together to truly be the Incredibles as a family. And that didn't happen. And the movie also was ridiculously, ridiculously predictable. And I was so disappointed because the sense of wonder that you had while you watched the first Incredibles, also watching the character work, left you open to the surprises that were in store as Syndrome laid out his plan. In this movie, you don't, you don't have that. And because you don't have that, everything is just literally dropped in your lap and it's easy to figure out. Uh, completely easy to figure out. I had I had the movie figured out within 20 minutes of it starting. And the first 12 minutes of the movie are just kind of rehashing the end of the previous movie and kind of how it plays into where the movie actually starts. So I was so disappointed by all that. Now, that being said, where the movie shines, it still shines. The idea of just this complete baby superpower genius as it were was was very was very well done it built on jack jack attack which is the bonus short from the incredibles that you found gosh i don't remember was that like in monsters inc or something i don't know um so it built on that and made it great which also led to edna being fantastic to see again as well so those those little things like that were really, really good. Watching Helen as Elastigirl really utilize her powers in a very, very provocative way. And I don't mean provocative in a sensual way. I mean provocative in a, wow, is that inventive? Wow, I can see how she really could have been her own. Those kinds of things, really, really cool. Um, there's a maglev chase at the, uh, roughly at the third the first third of the movie and it's the first maglev train ever. And, you know, and so the, our baddie of the uh, film has taken control of the train and she's got to try and save it. Those kinds of extended scenes like that, again, amazingly done, definitely adds to the universe and the world building as a whole. Awesome. 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 But all of that stuff doesn't mean anything when you can't get the heart and soul of the story right. And so that is why I give this movie a 3.25. I did like the movie. But knowing Brad Bird's work, knowing where The Incredibles have been, knowing they were up against a 14-year gap, and they still went with the most trite story and I mean, literally, just trifle melodramatic supervillain action is disappointing. And not focusing on the, the core family characters hurt the movie a lot. It's still gorgeous. There's still good characters to be had, even within what's there for Bob and Helen and Dash and Violet. But it's not what it could have been, and it's not what it should have been. Likeable enough still. 3.25. Bring us home there, Tim. There are only a few movies that come along each year that aren't perfect, but can still paint across my face that smile. And that smile makes overlooking their faults worthwhile. 
Incredibles 2 had the unpredictable task of following up 2004's The Incredibles, Brad Bird's follow-up to the beautifully crafted The Iron Giant, and Pixar's sixth animated film. The Incredibles was a complete surprise to me at the time to its swingin' art direction, swingin' James Bond-like alternative high-tech backdrop and retro premise revolving around a superhero family in which superhero flicks still were pretty niche in 2004, and also themes and subject matter geared more towards adults that kids were able to follow with ease. Brad Bird explored themes of existentialism and the nature of humanity in Warner Brothers' The Iron Giant, and The Incredibles touched on self-identity and that the importance of family and compassion not being a weakness. Both films, more so the latter than the former, also explore a particular aesthetic that also fascinated me at the time. The use of guns in an animated family film. The Incredibles marked the first Pixar and modern-day animated Disney flick to show the active use of firearms with the intent of harm. The firearms aren't used as a blatant tool for showcasing violence, but utilized as a world-building device to distinguish the superheroes from the non-superheroes. Now, I can't remember if this caused any commotion from angry parents or religious groups at the time, but I do remember watching as the credits roll and thinking to myself that I've never seen such a well-produced, kid-friendly action romp. Incredibles 2 not only had to live up to its predecessor's greatness, but also had to battle the 14-year gap in between release dates. The flick begins seemingly right after the events of the first Incredibles, with both kids and adults staying their same age. The young Huck Milner took over the voice of Dash Parr as Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter, and Sarah Val reprised their roles of Bob Barr, Mr. Incredible, Helen Parr, Elastigirl, and Violet Parr. With the exception of Craig T. Nelson, whose now breathy and obviously aged voice doesn't quite work for Mr. Incredible, everyone else sounds more or less the same. The art direction remains a visual treat and surpasses the originals with greater detail and depth. The action is exciting, becoming some of the most effective set pieces I've seen this year. The themes aren't nearly as subtle or fresh as the first film. Incredibles 2, the themes in it, rely on the theme of family importance, which was introduced in the first film. But Brad Bird does introduce the lack of assigned gender roles in modern-day society, i.e. Helen Parr able to fight crime on her own. Various story points from the first film are also rehashed. For example, the Parr family being easily seduced by an uber-rich upperclassman whose views align too much with the Incredibles, leading to Mr. Incredible in the first film and Miss Incredible in the sequel going to work for the uber-rich upperclassman, only to be double-crossed by a woman. Like the original, as the credits were rolling, I found that same smile painted across my face. Despite the unoriginal story and themes, I was very much entertained by the well-developed action, character building, and ageless humor. 
I personally am looking forward to the third Incredibles movie. Hopefully it does not take another 14 years to make. I give this one a 4.5 out of 5. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, I am fully aware, Matt, everything that you've mentioned and said, I noticed. But I just had a good time watching this movie. So 4.5 out of 5 for me. All right. Well, then next week's movies, that brings us to the end of this week's movies. Next week's movies are going to be Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yes, I'm super stoked about this movie. I've been wanting to see this movie for several months now. That is the documentary on Fred Rogers. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, not so much. But hey, we'll see what happens. And so I believe without further ado, it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. After 12 years in the minor leagues, I don't try out. Besides, uh, I don't believe in quantum physics when it comes to matters of the heart. What do you believe in then? Well, I believe in the soul. The cock, the pussy, the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, softcore pornography, opening your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. Good night. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to you by our partners, music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NickTwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Also, you can find us on Patreon as well. And if you're not into that, don't worry. You can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down in the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Trevor Jackson, I get to say this. Don't ever silence your morality to be part of anything. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. 
And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.